Hi, and thank you for joining us for In All Things, a weekly podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, stated clerk of the EPC. The motto of our family of congregations is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you so much, Rachel. Appreciate it as always. Uh, delight to work around the corner from you and, and uh, uh, to hear your voice every time we start this conversation together as a reminder of the fellowship of um, working in the office of the General Assembly that I value and appreciate so much here in Orlando. So, And welcome to all of you who are tuning in to yet another edition of In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's a delight to have you with us as always. Um, as we sit down uh, and have uh, conversations that are principally related to the EPC, from the EPC, about the EPC. But because we're an evangelical Presbyterian church, those conversations oftentimes are a blessing and encouragement and can apply to people well beyond our little family of churches. And uh, so if you're one of those folks who's listening in from a, a different family of churches or congregation, welcome to you too. We're glad to have you always we drop episodes like this every Friday, and we've been doing that for a couple of years now. We've just recently celebrated our 100th episode, which was a, a big moment for us. And, you know, for a, a small, low-budget organization, the word is getting out, and our best advertisement is word of mouth, or today, liking us on social and sharing us uh, on those different platforms. So if you get the chance to go to wherever you download your podcasts and like us, review us, pass this on to family, friends, uh, church members, small groups, things like that. That is super appreciated. Uh, I think you'll find that today's episode is one of those where you will want to share this, for example, uh, with your friends or your small group and say, hey, this is a really interesting conversation uh, to listen in on. Maybe we would join the conversation together and and extend that because uh, today we're going to be talking about beauty and how beauty plays a role in our discipleship as followers of Jesus. And we'll be doing that with an author, an EPC author. Her name is Paige Stitt McBride. Paige is the Director of Discipleship and Women's Ministries at Covenant EPC Church in Sharon, Pennsylvania. And um, Paige, we're delighted to have you on In All Things. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, yes. And we'll get into introducing Paige a little bit more in a second. You're going to love hearing her background and story and what God is doing um, through her in terms of this book and the books that she's working on. Uh, but before we do, we have a brief word by way of our sponsor for today, which is coming from the Gospel Priority of Transformation. And if you don't know what that is and you're in the EPC, don't worry, you're not alone. Transformation is code language, if you will, uh, for church health. Churches that are transformed uh, are usually led by transformed leaders, and that is elders, teaching elders, ruling elders, deacons, staff, uh, those who are themselves healthy uh, and are helping to lead churches to be healthy. And of course, a healthy church is going to be a reproducing church. And um, that usually starts with that disciple sharing their life with other disciples. And in that life-on-life discipleship, frequently the good news of Jesus is communicated. We call that evangelism. And so one of the things our church health ministry does is train in evangelism. So if you or your congregation is interested in learning how to easily communicate your faith with someone else, we have a resource called the Three Circles. 
And that is something that honestly can, you can learn it whether you're eight years old or 80 years old. It is a very simple, easy to learn uh, way of sharing the gospel with people. And we're hearing wonderful stories of people who have never uh, felt confident sharing their faith before doing so and leading friends, families, and coworkers to Christ. And that is what it's all about because the mission of the EPC is that we exist to carry out the Great Commission. And of course, that happens in your own Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, and even places like Sharon, Pennsylvania, believe it or not. It happens there too. And um, so whenever you you do your evangelism training, uh, remember that it's uh, the good news of Jesus that your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, and even those who are your neighbors to the ends of the earth um, need to hear about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And... Um, so uh, let's get into our discussion page. Help our listeners to learn a little bit more about you. Can you give us a little bit of your background? I know you're a, a North Hills of Pittsburgh woman. You come from the same area of the country in the state uh, that I come from. Um, we're probably mm-hmm. actually, you probably grew up just down the road from where I was. And I know of your family and, and we know each other a little bit. I think I actually went to college with your uncle, I believe. Yes, I think that's correct. Yeah, so let's 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 put the pieces together. Help uh, our listeners get to know you a little bit better, and give us your background. Yeah, so I grew up uh, in the North Hills of Pittsburgh, um, and I've been in an EPC church pretty much my entire life. I started out when I was little. I don't remember this time, but at Memorial Park EPC, and then for most of my um, young years and all throughout high school, I was at North Park EPC, and then. Eventually, I went off to Grove City College and found myself at another EPC church, Covenant Presbyterian, and that is now where I live and work part-time. So the EPC has been the church where I've found my faith in Jesus Christ, been taught, where I've been nurtured to uh, get more interested in theology and biblical studies. And so I grew up in the church, grew up in uh, a loving Christian family, and uh When I was in high school, I started getting more leadership opportunities in uh, helping other young women study the Bible, was doing some stuff in the public school with a before-school Bible study, and I'd say that's when I started to really get excited about teaching and thinking hard about the biblical text. And so when I went off to Grove City my freshman year, I had a biblical studies minor, just getting excited about learning more just for the sake of learning. And then as I continued with that minor and I had an education major, uh, I wanted to be a a middle school teacher. Eventually, I felt called that uh, I wanted to use that learning in biblical studies for some kind of career and make that my main focus of study. And so I switched over to a Christian Ministries and Biblical Studies degree, graduated from Grove City. And then now I'm uh, at RTS online getting my master's in biblical studies. So Basically, I'm just a Bible nerd obsessed with learning more, (laughs) digging in, digging deeper. So that's what I spend my days doing, whether it's with stuff for discipleship at Covenant Church or for my degree with RTS uh, or teaching, leading Bible studies, talking with my husband. Uh, I got married a couple weeks after I graduated from Grove City, and we now have a nine-month-old, almost 10-month-old, wow, that's old, a 10-month-old daughter, Violet. And yeah, we happily live in Hermitage, PA. And my husband actually works at Grove City College now. So that's our little family. And um, I'm very, very thankful for where I am and where I've been. Well, I 
love your story in so many different ways, Paige. I mean, as you you know, I graduated from Grove City College just a few years before you. Uh-huh, just a um, few. <laughs> yeah, but also I think back in the day we didn't call it biblical studies. I think they called it Christian thought or something like yeah. that. So you were privileged to have, you know, the Solgi Bayunes and the Carl Trumans. Oh, yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. I was privileged to have the Greg Beals and the Andrew Hoffakers mm. and the John Currids and, um, yes. you know, but such a great foundation. I mean, if you really want to be grounded in a biblical worldview and have a solid liberal arts education, not that Grove City is sponsoring this podcast or anything, but you could do a whole lot worse. Uh, and I, oh, I, amen to that. <laughs> and I'm privileged to serve on their board of trustees right now and, um, and yes. know that that tradition under President Paul McNulty has not only been cherished, but has been nurtured and cultivated. And what we're seeing happening on that campus is uh, just really kingdom transformational stuff. And, and you're, you're a living proof of that. So we're, I'm just delighted yes, to have I, you here. I, I can't agree enough. Grove City really was a huge blessing to me. And those professors, as you said, just really helped me lean into my calling as a follower of Jesus. So yeah, I, my, my, my brain was a bowl full of mush page. Um, you know, my, (laughs) my first class with uh, Greg Beal, who's written the authoritative commentary in the book of revelation. My first conversation with Dr. Beal, you know, went something like this. He's Mr. Weaver, why do you believe what you believe? And I, I said, well, I, I feel this. And he stopped me. He said, Mr. Weaver, I'm not willing to base my life and eternal destiny on your feelings. Let us attend the word of God. (laughs) (laughs) And that was my Damascus road. That was, you know, I came to Christ when I was 14, but I grew up in a fairly liberal church. So I didn't, I didn't really have any discipleship. And, and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. I saw the Bible for the first time for what it was, a living, breathing word of God. And and that just changed everything. And then to have that kind of foundational teaching and to develop that kind of a biblical worldview just totally changed the course of my faith in life. So can't, can't say enough about that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I grew up in, in EPC church, so I, I did get discipleship and I did get robust theology. And that's one of the things that set me up so well for college. But the biblical studies program, I think, actually helped me to be able to defend that in a little bit more thoughtful ways and opened me up to the more liberal view of scripture and Christianity. I didn't even really understand what liberal Christianity was before going to Grove City, because uh, that was where I learned sort of what these distinctions are and how I can stand firm in the true biblical faith that believes in the authoritative and valuable word of God. So yeah. Yep. Well, let's let's turn the corner and talk about this book. Beauty Not Beheld is a self beautiful. The cover is beautiful. The writing is beautiful. Um, and it's 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 kind of a devotional because it kind of takes you through day by day, but it really gets at this idea of some of the fundamental assumptions, uh, maybe underlying presuppositions that people in a modern worldview carry, um, you challenge those by looking at the scripture and seeing the beauty in God's words there. So beauty not beheld. Tell us a little bit more about what led you to, to write this book. Yeah. Uh, so one of the classes that we have to take at Grove City is civilization and the arts. And it was that my first class with Dr. Munson that he s- sort of started the class with the discussion of is beauty really in the eye of the beholder, that common adage. And that's where the book's name, Beauty Not Beheld, is kind of a spinoff to sort of counter that common phrase of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So Dr. Munson challenged us to sort of think about that and what the implications of that phrase would be and also the assumptions, those presuppositions that lie behind it. 
And then we had to write a paper involving something about uh, objective beauty versus subjective beauty, make a defense for it and, and apply it in some sort of way. And at the time, I was serving in Young Life, uh, which is a Christian ministry for those not familiar. It's it's an outreach ministry for high school students. Um, so I was going into a local school district, Sharon, PA. So Sharon High School, I was going in there meeting students, and then we would have gatherings um, where we would evangelize, share the gospel, and then hopefully end up discipling these students and connecting them with the church. And I found that as I was doing this Young Life ministry, one of the conversations that completely repeatedly came back with these young women was discussions of identity, of beauty, insecurity with physical appearance, and just sort of self-consciousness. All of those kinds of topics were just repeatedly brought up to me. And I found myself a bit unprepared to speak biblically about it. I think I just started sort of naturally spouting off the the common things that you might see on Instagram today about sort of self-love and, uh, you know, you're perfect the way you are, you're enough the way you are. And the more I, I, I read the scriptures and thought about it, I was like, I'm not quite sure if this is consistent with what I say I believe. And I want to be able to speak truth to these young women because I believe that it's truth that sets us free. I don't think lies set us free. And so I don't want to speak lies to these young women, especially in what is growing into sort of a a, just an epidemic of identity crisis and um, self-consciousness, insecurity. And so I dove into for my paper topic for Civ Arts, the idea of how objective beauty might be the, the the theological key to understanding identity in ways that will free women from from the lies uh, that our culture is feeding to us without us really even realizing it. And so that started out as a paper talking about body image and its relationship to objective beauty. And then later on, when I found the opportunity to pitch a book to uh, a small company called Hosanna Revival, that's where I found myself and it turned into Beauty Not Beheld. Well, and let's, let's kind of start there because I think you start with the perceived self, Right. And, uh, you know, yes. people frequently say to me, it's one of those axioms you hear all the time, you know, perception is reality. And I always stop them and I say, you know, stop saying that. That's <laughs> it's not true. Um, it's not true. Perception. It's very dangerous. Yes, it really is. Perception is a distortion of reality. You know, Romans one twenty five says they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And, you know, we grew up under the the curse of sin since Adam, right? So, which mm-hmm. means yeah. uh, everything we view uh, apart from God's view is a distortion. It's it's a it's a distortion of reality. So, when uh, right. when someone looks in the mirror and it comes to perception of self, the question is 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 what you're seeing, perceiving of yourself, true or not? Is it right? And 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 there's a relationship there between truth and beauty. Right. I mean, my generation yes. page asked the question frequently, what is true? I think your generation has, has yes. asked the question, what is beautiful? And I don't think they're detached from one another because not the, at all. It's the fact that God has determined what is true also tells us when you look at the perceived self, what is beautiful? Am I on the right track? Yeah. So I, that is one thing that I try to do in the book is to ground beauty in the idea of truth. And so at the beginning of the book, um, I I define beauty as a realization of the good or the true. And I I define it as a realization to say that, you know, beauty is more abstract. It's not truth in the sense uh, sense of some sort of logical theological statement or proposition, 
but it's realizing truth or confronting us with the good, with the true. And so I, I look at, I believe it's Psalm 19 that speaks of how the heavens declare the glory of God. So, so beauty has a, a communicative purpose. It, it, in some sort of abstract, uh, unspeakable way, beauty reveals the truth to us. It reveals the good. It confronts us with the good so that we have sort of a whole experience with all of our senses of the good and not just a logical, rational grasp of the good, but a an experience of the good. To separate the true from the beautiful is actually a very deep mistake, and it can lead to, to scary things. And that is, I, I begin the perceived self chapter talking about the motif that begins Genesis, which is how God sees that things are good when he creates them. He creates, and what does it say? And he saw that it was good. And that's the repetition all of Genesis 1, and then right at the end, and he saw that it was all very good, right? The next time that verb saw comes up is in Genesis 3, and it's Eve seeing that the the tree, that the fruit was good for knowledge, that it was beautiful. And so it actually uses Eve's fall into sin in terms of a change in her perception. And I talk about how at the beginning of Genesis 1, the the end says, and behold, as if the author of Genesis is, is inviting us to see things the way God sees it, and behold, it was good. And yet then in Genesis 3, what happens is that Eve starts to see through her own eyes rather than through the eyes of God. And that is the essence of our, our fall when we start to declare on our own, apart from God's design and apart from his authoritative perception, we start to decide what is good, what is beautiful, what is true. And so that that phrase of in people doing what is right in their own eyes sort of becomes a biblical motif the rest of the scriptures because it was Eve's perception that she saw the fruit in a certain way. And so perception and truth uh, we need to get clear how how the Bible sees how they interact. So, right. uh, yeah, I think I think you're onto something about connecting the idea of truth and beauty, and then how can we? The goal of the book was really how can we start to put back on the, the lenses, the the glasses of the Bible, so that we can see through the eyes of God to what is true and good, rather than depending on our own very blurry and often very distorted vision. And as you progress through the book, I mean, and if someone were to work through it, I think as you've created it, it would be about six weeks for them to go through it. And they would start yes. with that kind of fundamental base, you know, the, the, this almost epistemological sort of foundation. But then you, yeah. you look at the broken self, you, you look at what scripture says about the redeemed self, the, the person who's made new, mm-hmm. and then you apply that to their physical self, their, how they see themselves mm-hmm. uh, projected into the, into the future. And, and so I think there's kind of this super helpful way of walking through, through the lens of scripture, how we look at ourselves as God, uh, I think, as you said, at God's view of how we should look at ourselves. Yeah. And that's a, yeah. that's a important correction to make because of the, the distortions that so many of us have bought into without even realizing we've done so. But it's, 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 you use the idea of beauty as a way to help us be redirected. And my good friend, uh, Jeremy Casella, Christian artist in Nashville, um, has a song that says beauty leads the way. So how is it that beauty page is that thing, particularly for a younger generation can connect with how it leads the way to God's intended purposes for how we understand ourselves? Yeah. So I mentioned in my definition of beauty. I based it on Psalm 19 that says the heavens declare the glory of God. 
And so that's to say that the physical creation, its beauty is communicating God's glory. And so I think if we want to consider that phrase of beauty leading the way, the idea is that beauty is particularly effective in communicating the greatness, the goodness, the richness, the majesty of God. In a sort of inexplicable, inexpressible way, beauty has a way of of pooling us. It's why singing a song, it can be more powerful in teaching us a lesson than simply speaking the words of a song. There's something in the beauty of music that confronts us with the truth that we're singing in a way that maybe just saying it or reading it might not. Right. Um, and so I, I do think that beauty is going to be incredibly important for our generation in pointing us back to truth. Um, right. Because if we if we can get a handle on the fact that beauty is God's design to declare his glory mm. and communicate that to us, then beauty will point us back to truth, never away from the truth. And I think the, the scriptural authors realize that earthly beauty often ends up having the tendency to make us look at outward things that are sort of masks for very ugly inward things. But if we can get back to this idea that beauty is a communicator of truth, I think reconnecting those dots between beauty and truth will be incredibly powerful for this generation, because I think you're right that that question of what is beautiful is what's on the hearts of people. We long for the beautiful, and especially in a culture that is very in touch with our feelings and our emotions, beauty has a way of communicating to our emotions that sometimes raw logic or reasoning doesn't. And so I do think that understanding and thinking about beauty and cultivating beauty around us is a fantastic way to towards sanctification leading the way towards Mm. more christ-likeness because it it leads us into truth is what i i honestly believe oh i think you're so right Paige, and i think i hope people hear this as a call particularly next generation to not disengage uh from the arts for example but to really engage in such a way that um, Mm. i i think you know, throughout the church's history, we have oftentimes helped to cultivate culture in the arts. And I think yeah. the, the use of beauty to call people back, I'm just uh, picturing the other night page, I was driving home and there was this enormous full moon rising. I live close to the beach and it just was stunning, right? Mm. And I thought to myself, if I was on the beach with like 10 people, right, before the moon came up and I said, God created everything and, and those 10 people Probably some of them would go, yeah, absolutely true. Some of them would go, well, that's an odd statement to make. Some of them might have looked <laughs> out at the ocean and said, well, that is pointing us to something bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm. But then once yeah. the moon came up, and if you've ever seen a moon rise over the ocean, it is just beautiful. And yeah. I think if I made the same comment as the moon was rising out of the ocean, God created everything and it was good. I think those same 10 people would go, wow, <laughs> you yeah. know, versus right. it's not just a head conversation. It was an, ex- they, 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 the beauty pointed to the creator. And that's, right. I think the value of your going back to Psalm 19, which of course kind of says, you know, God reveals himself generally in the creation to right. point us to yeah. him, but more specifically in his word to point us to him in both point us to the God who reveals what is true, and he uses beauty mm-hmm. to do that. Right. And and it, I think it's powerful because, as you said, Psalm 19 is first focused on sort of general revelation, how his how God reveal, reveals himself to all. And so it really is a, a common starting place. All, all people have a sense of beauty in their, in their hearts. And so when they look at that 
beautiful sunset or that rising moon or that huge ocean and the the mountains, whatever it may be, that that's a place of general revelation where all creation is speaking to all people. And I think it's a beautiful gateway into special revelation. And so, yes, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think this is a, is a call for us as Christians to appreciate beauty. You know, sometimes I used to sort of think of beauty as purely a trivial sort of secular thing, like, oh, that that's when I put aside, you know, my spiritual self and I'm just sort of being trivial, worrying about, you know, what I look like or whatever it may be. But and of course, there is an idolatry of beauty and the book discusses that thoroughly. But right. I found that in things like picking out a paint color for my new house and looking at colors and silly things like that, that I would have written off as trivial, I'm beginning to see that they're sacred um, because they communicate the creative God that I worship. And they do it in a way that someone who reads a lot and thinks a lot needs. Um, And so, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that cultivating arts and diving into thinking about beauty uh, is really important for our generation. Yeah. And I appreciate because I feel like your book page, um, it, it really speaks against this bifurcation of the sacred and secular. And it really puts Mm -hmm. in connecting the dots between truth and beauty, I think is so important. And I, I don't think it's honestly something that a lot of people in an older generation, I'll throw myself into that category, have thought about. Because again, our mm-hmm. question was, what is true? What is true? What is true? And I think yeah. in the younger generation, that's just kind of like going over the heads and past people. But you're connecting the dots. You're you're getting at God's intended wholeness, which declares his glory, and you're connecting beauty and truth. And for those who are interested in a, a thoughtful, beautiful, biblically grounded approach to, to, to understanding um, God's intended plan for how beauty leads us to God's truth, and and most particularly to a hurting, broken generation, truth about who they really were created to be in God's image. I think your book does a marvelous job of pointing us back in that direction. Mm. Well, thank you so much, and I, you know, I'll add to that. I think one of the big aha moments as I was thinking and writing the book, and it now that I say it, I'm like, how could that be an aha moment? That seems quite obvious, but it, it really was for me that the struggle that so many women or young people in general have with image is it's not being solved by the common cultural response, which is you're perfect the way you are. You are worthy in and of yourself. You need to delight in all things about yourself and affirm all things about yourself. It's not working. We are getting further and deeper in insecurities and sort of a often narcissism that's debilitating. And I found that this acknowledgement of actually we are made in the image of God, but because we have rebelled against that God that we are made in the image of, we are no longer perfect and we are no longer perfectly beautiful. And so when you look in the mirror, you don't have to lie to yourself that you're perfect. You don't have to sit there and say everything about my body is the way that it that it, it was designed to be. Uh, in fact, the creation itself experiences sort of the, the corruption of sin. And Paul talks about that in Romans 8, that that all of creation, not just the, the spiritual corruption, but a physical, this isn't what things were supposed to be originally. And I think there's comfort in the realism of, yeah, my body or my appearance might not be what I want it to be today. It might not be perfect, uh, but that there's a resurrected body and there's a hope and that there's beauty surrounding me. And there's always some beauty in me because of the image of God that's left in me. And I think that sort of realism is refreshing and actually liberating 
And so I'm excited about being able to talk honestly with young women about that rather than sort of feeding the the common adages to them that I think end up just worsening the problem, honestly. Yep. It is refreshing and it is liberating. So I want to conclude this page by just reading a little bit from um, my friend and former colleague when I worked at Grove City, uh, Carl Truman writes in your foreword and he says this, mm. he says, the perennial challenge for the church since the last time Paul penned, since at least the time Paul penned 1 Corinthians, has been to press the gospel on each generation in a manner which exposes the myths human beings tell about each other, themselves, and the world in which they live, and to do so in a way that shows how the gospel of Jesus Christ presents us with a better way of living before each other Mm. and before God. That the gospel remains the same and will always be foolishness or an offense to those or to whoever happens to be the contemporary equivalent of Paul's Greeks and Jewish critics, the precise ways in which it is dismissed as much are always particular to the cultural ethos of the times. And then he says, in the pages of this book, Page takes apart the myths of the modern expressive self, along with many false beliefs that it fosters, lies about beauty, subjectivism, the authority of emotions, and underlying them all, the lie that rejects even the possibility of transcendent absolute truth. Yet she does so in a way that leads the reader gently by the hand, day by day, not only to see the futility of the world's conceptions about these matters, but the true beauty of the Bible's answers. And I think that points people to why they ought to consider picking up your book, Beauty Not Beheld, by Paige Stitt McBride. Paige, where would they find a copy of your book? How would they get a a handle on it? Yeah, you can go to hosannarevival.com and they have a devotionals tab and you'll find uh, Beauty Not Beheld listed among their devotionals at hosannarevival.com. And what's cool about it is actually was designed by an artist who was the one who started Hosanna Revival, the company. So she has a bunch of paintings throughout the book and you can access it there. I believe it's also on christianbooks.com, Beauty Not Beheld. And so those are the two places that you can go get the book. Okay. And do you have a presence on social anywhere where if people want to follow you, they could uh, connect? Yes, absolutely. I am on Instagram. Uh, On Instagram, I am page.mcbride. And so you can find me on Instagram. That is pretty much the, the, the one social that I'm on. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Paige. It's been a delight to have the conversation with you and um, maybe someday we'll come back. I'm just curious about, you know, this idea of really kind of going back and drilling down on next generation understanding a self as the Bible uh, reveals and describes a self to us because I'm concerned in this age of uh, particularly yeah. AI age where people are starting mm-hmm. to look to other almost kind of transhuman understandings of self and not accepting. Uh, So that's just a long conversation for another day, but I I think you've started us off in the right direction and uh, maybe we'll come back and revisit that because I think it is the, it is the operative question of today. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much, Paige. Thank you. And um, I hope friends, this has been a stimulating conversation for you. And I I encourage you to to look forward to getting um, uh, Paige's book and she has some others. And do you have another book coming out in the near future, Paige? Yes, I do. Um, It's going to be called uh, In Weeping and Rejoicing. And it's a theology of emotions in in life. Oh, wow. Um, So it takes on some of the things that I talked about in Beauty Not Be Held, but then takes sort of a deep dive into how our emotions relate to our spirituality and some of the cultural lies 
that we might hear about emotions and how we can cultivate an emotional life that is honoring to God and glorifying to God and awesome. that leads to human flourishing. So, all right. Well, when that comes out, reach back out to us and we'll, we'll have another conversation. Okay. I look forward to it. We'll do super. Well, my friends that wraps our time together and I pray that you might uh, find this not only a blessing, but encouragement to pass on to others as well. And we end this conversation as we do with the good word from God's word, which, um, reorients not only all of our thinking, but orders our affections as well. The sun is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things. And that includes beauty, all things hold together, for he is the head of the body, the church. Until the next time when we gather and have this conversation in this venue, until then, my friends, I bid grace and peace to you. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of the entire team, please join us for our next episode. For more information about the EPC, including a directory of local churches, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.